All right, so this morning, I have a zoo story too. Not joking, I pull out of the driveway, out the gate, gate opens, and there is a peacock right in front of our driveway, a male, full-colored peacock. And I know this, we don't have wild peacocks there in the part of Fort Worth we live in, but I know that our neighbor down the other street has some peacocks, so it must have got out and stuff. But as it opened up, I was just already thinking on the way here, just kind of running through my message, and I thought, you know what, let's pray Let's use that peacock to, to lead us in our prayer this morning. And so here's, here's the prayer emphasis. That gate opened up, and it was unexpected. <laughs> like, it totally, really, truly caught me off guard. Like, okay, I could have guessed 100 times, and I was not going to guess that one was what was going to uh, hit me. And so that, how about this morning as we pray? Let's just open up our hearts, open up our minds, and even as we look at a familiar couple of texts, and even as we... Uh, look at a familiar topic of families and children. Why don't we just ask the Lord to surprise us today and, and share something unexpected? And so, Lord, let's just go ahead and bow our heads and ask that. So, Lord, uh, we just ask that. Surprise us. Um, not, not like you have to perform a trick or something to entertain us. I'm just saying surprise us. Uh, we come in with all sorts of stuff going on. Every life's a little different bring in different challenges and different uh, things that we're facing. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts and our minds and just surprise us. And may we walk out unexpectedly touched uh, in some way that we just did not see coming. Because truthfully, you do that. I, as a speaker, have no ability to share the deep truths of God. Just a mere human mind. And yet I'm supposed to try to share the deep truths of God and yet your Holy Spirit will go between me and the ears and the hearts of the listeners. And as you do that, I just pray that you'd surprise and, and, and soothe and comfort and encourage us today. We love you, Lord. And we did not come here just to take up time. Like We didn't just check the box this morning. We love you. And we wanted to devote this time and bring you our worship. And also, we want you to speak to us because we need a fresh word each and every time we come in this place. In Jesus' name I pray it, amen. All right, it's family worship, so I'm gonna need a volunteer. <clears throat> Evan, can you help me? Come on, Evan, come on. Let's give Evan a hand. He had no idea, still has no idea. <laughs> this could be profitable for you, so come on up here. I think you're gonna like the end result. You may not like what comes in between. But you know what? Such is life, right? <laughs> All right. So, Evan, you're a good man, right? Uh, yes. yes, you are. All right. I have a little gift for you, and it's real simple. Don't want you to overthink this. I've got this $20 bill. This would be nice to go home with this $20 bill, right? And I want to give this to you, free of charge. But first, I have a question. <clears throat> In fact... I want to give this to you, but I want to just test you to see if you really understand the value of this $20 bill. So what I'm going to do first is, I know you said you would have this $20 bill, but would you have it even if I did this? Even though I rubbed my feet on it and stomped on it, would you still have this $20 bill? All right, man, it's yours. But let me just, uh, <coughs> just take it a, another step further, Evan. What if I did this and I crumbled it all up and I even threw it on the ground and, but, and now it's not nearly as pretty, uh, but, but you really probably don't even want it now, right? You would still take this even though it's all crumbled, even though I've stepped on it. It's, it's yours, but, 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 but. What if I went a little further and I did this? Hey, I saw a stat. We were playing a kid's game last night, like a little family game, and they said, do you know what percentage of a U.S. $1 bills carry disease-causing viruses? <laughs> and do you know what percentage it was? No. 96. <laughs> so even before I did all this, it was probably pretty dirty, but, but seriously, now, crumpled as it is, stepped on as it is, and sweaty, would you still take this $20 bill? Well, just take it. Take it. All right, Evan, thank you. You're a smart man. That's the easiest $18 you're ever going to make. 
Right, Evan? Right? You see that? You know the math? There you go. Your brother knows. All right. All right. So obviously Evan's a smart guy. And so he knows that the value of that 20 is stamped on it by our country, right? Our, our government has stamped it and said, you know what, this thing is valuable. Even if we cut it in half and, and taped it back together, it still would hold the same value. It didn't matter how sweaty it got, how dirty it got, how crumpled it got, it has great value. I want to remind you guys today, and this is Family Worship Sunday, so all you kids, wave at me. Wave at me. Good to have you. Hello. I see you have some up there too, yes? Uh, I want you to know, if this applies to all of us, but I especially want you kids to know that you have been stamped by the Lord Jesus, and his value has been put on you, and so it doesn't matter what you ever do, any mistake you ever make, any, any place you go that you shouldn't have gone, your value, just like that $20 bill, is going to hold because the Lord has stamped his image on you, and you need to get that truth real deep down inside. And yet, notoriously, humanity, we're constantly forgetting our value, right? I mean, just go way back in the Bible, Adam sold his soul. For an apple and really that passed down to us as well Esau not very many pages later sells his birthright for a bowl of soup you see it constantly how our value we, we undervalue it we forget and, uh, and it's just a reality it's just part of our tendency and we tend to believe uh, that we are value less we tend to believe that we're that we're somehow on this sliding scale of value well the twenty dollars was a little bit more valuable before it got stepped on and it was a little bit more valuable before it got stepped on and got sweaty and, so, and it, it, it's not happening though that's not really reality that's not really what happens and we tend to think that about ourselves too and the real test people children listening the real test is whoever made it kind of gets to Call, to place the value on it, right? And so this $20 bill, the United States of America said, that's a 20, we'll put the two, we'll put the zero, that's got value, there you go. And since the Lord made you, you gotta ask yourself, well, what has he, I mean, can I trust that he values me? I know Pastor Josh is saying there's value there, but is, did it, am I really that valuable? And I just had to ask the question, whenever you were purchased, what did it cost? Like if I go to the, get an Apple uh, iPhone or something, it's like a thousand bucks. And so Steve Jobs and that later his team, they said, you know what, that thing should cost about $1,000. Uh, and so it does. And because he created it, he gets to, to name the value. And uh, with us, with humans, when it came time for us to be purchased back, the creator of our souls, who knows our true value, even when we forget, came and bought back our souls with a very hefty price. He laid down his life. I mean, God gave his son to buy back uh, humanity. And I just want to remind you guys that you are incredibly, incredibly valuable today. And it's because God has stamped himself. And so uh, we're going to look at Psalm 139 to start out with, uh, verses 13 to 16. And I'm going to kind of read this slowly. And I want you just to let these words just pour over you and just receive it because this is, this is the truth about you. It says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And you're one of the works and you're wonderful. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Some of you guys just need to be reminded today that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have great value, and it doesn't matter what you did last week. Your value is constant with the Lord. And it's wrapped up in that unconditional love. It's wrapped up in that amazing economy that God runs. I don't, it doesn't work that way in, in the, the rest of, the, of our lives. But when it comes to God, uh, our value is steady. In fact, I think I said this one time years ago. Uh, I remember one time I was teaching this truth to, to my youth group. And I remember saying, you know, there's nothing you can ever do to make God love you less. And there really isn't. You can go out and you can make a really bad decision and God doesn't love you any less. And then I said, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore. And they all started laughing. Like, what? And like shocked. And, la and I was like, what do you, what do you, what's, the, what's the response for? And I said, well, there's nothing you can ever do to make God love you anymore. And I was thinking anymore in quantity, but they were receiving it like anymore. 
Like, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. Sorry. And that, that, was, that kind of derailed that message. So I kind of avoided that with, with Evan. So as we look at families today, because it is family worship, um, and as we're reminded of our value, and it's not because you brought something to the table. <laughs> it's because the Lord has done this thing in you, and he's knitted you together, and you're wonderfully made, and he did it long before you even took your first, bre- first breath. Because he stamped his image on you, you have value. And so now, I want to turn to Psalm 127, which is one of those verses that I like to share in like two or three minutes on, um, on uh, child dedications. And it's that verse that talks about how children are a gift from the Lord. Anybody have children here? Yeah. What a gift. What an amazing, an amazing, amazing gift. And an expensive gift. Um, I didn't even mean it that way. I just meant it was an expensive gift. Like the Lord has valued it. It's a great gift. I mean, he gave it. But they are expensive too. I got four of them. So... So, uh, the second part of that talks about uh, the, the children being a gift. I talk about that often. The second part of it, though, talks about how they're like, like arrows in the hands of warriors. Have you ever heard me talk about that or someone talk about that, that concept? I mean, if you're a warrior, you would take great care of these arrows because you know that one day this could be, <laughs> this could be very important that you have a good arrow and you don't want to shoot that thing and it just wobble off to the to the miss the target. And so I wanted to talk about that just for a second. With arrows, you don't just plant an arrow and it grows an arrow and it's little and then medium sized and full grown we have an arrow. With an arrow, it's like you take the raw materials, you take the stick and you take the feathers and you take the rock and you've got to do a lot of sharpening and grooming and, and sanding and uh, you get the right, you know, to just do a lot of work to manipulate it and to, and, to, and to form it into an effective arrow. And that's pretty much what we're doing as parents. And like, chill, like, like uh, arrows in the hands of a warrior, that's what's happening in my home right now. I've got four of these arrows, and they're at these, at the, there's, a, there's one that's almost 13, and there's one that's six, and then there's, a, there's two in between. And, and we're just, we're grooming them, and we're, we're shaping, shaping them, and we're sharpening them, and we're making sure the feathers are just right. And it's not always pretty along the way, but at some point, about the, at the end of our journey here, when it's time to release them, which is what you have to do, right? You release them. Say amen. If your 35-year-old son is still in the house, say release them. Release them. Let's come on. This is supposed to happen. This is the next step. But at some point, we spend all this time as parents doing all this work, getting them prepared so that one day we put them on the string, we pull them back, we aim them the best we know how. And how many know as parents, sometimes we just, we don't always know everything that we wish we know, but we do the best we know how and then we release them. And at that point, at the point of the release, it's out of your hands. Not say you won't ever go and check on it. I'm just saying that arrow is out of your hands. And so you better hope that you've spent the time on the front end to groom and to form and to straighten and to arrange and to sharpen because that arrow is going to be flying and it's either going to hit its target or it's not. It's going to do, it's going to penetrate the target or it's not. It's going to be flying crazy or it's not. It's going to be straight. And so we have all this time on the front end to get that, uh, to get that uh, prepared. And so parents, just realize when it says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, realize there's some work to be done. The focal point here is we got, we got some work and we've got we've to prepare that arrow because it really is a gift. He and she really is a gift. Uh, and so this is the time where we've got we've to pour into that gift. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and, uh, and that effort uh, leads me to another scripture, uh, Proverbs 22.6, uh, which talks about that, all that work that goes into preparing that arrow. Uh, 22.6 is that scripture that you've all heard of, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, I want to remind you that as we look at this proverb, this is a proverb. That means it's proverbial. That means it's not a promise. Is that by, you get that? Proverbs and promises are two different things. There are some times that we take a scripture and we stand on that. That is a promise. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us. That is a promise. If we knock, he'll answer. That's a promise. But this is a proverb, which means, generally speaking, this is the way it goes. More times than not, this is how it goes. Proverbs are typically very short, and they often pack a pretty powerful punch. And so the the proverb says, and it's a wonderful proverb, the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
Now, early on in my youth ministry days, before I really realized that this is a proverb and not a promise, I remember talking with parents that honestly, honestly, before God, they'd say, you know what? We trained up our child in the way they should go. We did it. And yet my child is off right now and is prodigal and is living uh, for themselves. What happened? Is the Bible untrustworthy? I mean, what is going on? And I remember wrestling with it as a young minister. Like, I don't know. I thought it was supposed to just be like this and then this. Only to find out later that, you know, it is a proverb and everybody makes their own choice. And so generally speaking, you train up that child, it's going to turn out. It's going to turn out well. But especially along the journey before time has, uh, before all the time and all the grace has been poured out on that child, sometimes along the journey you might find yourself with a child who's not and who has departed from what you trained them. And that's painful. I haven't ever experienced that one firsthand, but that is painful. And so to you guys, I want to encourage, number one, you're in the journey. You're in the journey, okay? And we got to remember that the Lord is still a redeemer. So while this is a proverb, right, there are other promises. Aren't you glad your Bible's not one verse long? There's lots of promises coming in. And I want to remind you that if your child has departed, God is a redeeming God. He's still redeeming today. I want to also remind you that God is a good shepherd. And he has a history of leaving the 99 and going after that one. And so if you're praying that the Lord would go after your one, absolutely keep praying that. And don't let this proverb slow you down. Uh, I want to remind you too that God is a way maker. Some of you guys say, yeah, I know, I know he does those things, but this one seems impossible. Well, he makes ways where there seem to be no ways. He, he does that. He still does that. God loves unconditionally, and he does not grow weary in the pursuit. And I want to remind you that as a parent if your child has departed uh, temporarily. I want to also remind you that God is jealous. God is jealous. And as much as you want that child back, God desires and is wooing and is longing. And he will take every uh, opportunity to, to, to bring them back. God's also omnipresent. I don't care where your child has gone. I don't care where you've gone. No height nor depth can separate us from his reach, and he is constantly reaching. So parents, if, as we're going to be talking about training up a child, I don't want you on the front end to lose me. I want you to keep following me throughout this, but I need to remind you on the front end, if that's where you're at, realize that our God is still answering prayers. He loves your child, and believe it or not, he loves your child even more than you do. Because he gave them to you. He knit them in, their, in, in your mother's womb. He's the one that made them wonderfully. He's the one that stamped his image on them. He loves them unbelievably. And you're only touching and beginning to love him as, as much as he did. So he loves them. He has not forgotten them. And so I want to remind you that, that we do serve a loving father and he welcomes back prodigals. And we'll continue to do that. All right, as so we prepare to look at this Proverb. I want to look at two interpretations of it this morning. And let's remember the first one is probably the more traditional one, and then the second one is something I'm still wrestling with a little bit, but it kind of brings, it brings uh, hope and challenges me on some different levels. I think you'll see that in a little bit. Uh, Proverbs 22.6, uh, the first more traditional one is the one that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's the King James Version. Train up. Let's not overthink this. Train up just means to help your child, to dedicate your child, to teach your child in the way they should go. And what's the way? Towards God, towards his precepts and his principles and his laws and towards, uh, towards him. So train up a God. Help your, or train up a child. Help your child. Dedicate them. Teach them to be more like God and to have an encounter with God. And parents, I'm in this stage of life. We do this. Like, I mean, this is what, so much of what we do and so much how we pattern our day is to try to do this. Like, we're trying, we're trying hard. I mean, it's the bedtime prayers. Anybody pray with their kids at bedtime? Yeah? I've already told you guys, bedtime is my least favorite time of the day. Everybody else just covets it and loves it and thinks it's so sweet. Bedtime has always taken like two hours for our family, and I, it has whipped me and wore me out. And so I had to like go and receive new mercies and strength and courage to face bedtime because I just want to go to bed, and it's tough. So, but bedtime prayers, that's why we do those. That's why we, we play Christian music in the car because we're trying to train up our kids and we're trying to put them around and let them be surrounded by good things. We bring them to church. We put them in the kids' choir. We, we bring them to youth because we're trying to raise them and train them. We're trying to help them recognize evil and avoid evil. We're trying to help them cling to what is good and recognize good and decipher this world. And we're trying to do all that because we're trying to train them and we know we have a limited amount of time because at some point that arrow is launching 
And whatever's going to take place takes place before we let go of that string. And so we got some work to do. And so that's why we do things like willingly have really uncomfortable and awkward conversations with our children, especially when they hit about 10 and 12 and 13. If you thought I was going to say 16 and 18, you were behind. You need to go talk to Pastor Shaler and willingly have these conversations at 8 and 10 and 12. You have these conversations because you just want to help your child uh, grow along the way and, and because you want to you want to train them up in the way that he should go. And we do all sorts of other things. We put them in places where they can have encounters with God. We send them to youth camp. We send them to kids camp. We put them in kids choir. Uh, we send them to the all-city worship. Anybody do that in the youth this last week? The all-city worship? Yeah? I heard good things. Continue to do that because you're trying to put yourself in a spot. You're trying to put your kids in a spot where they might have an encounter with the Lord. And that's what you want because it just takes an encounter. And it takes several encounters over our lives. But you just have an encounter with the Lord and what seemed to be going this way all of a sudden goes this way. Has anybody ever had an encounter with the Lord that has changed your life? Yeah, probably several. I remember at 12 I had an encounter. I probably had one at 5 because I think that's about the time I was, uh, received Christ for the first time. But I remember at 12 having a real strong encounter. I think Dave Reaver or Al Reaver was speaking at a Sears camp. And man, it changed my life radically but then I had some others at 18 and 21 and, and 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 onward I remember one time was when Stephen was speaking at a youth camp we were your assistant youth pastor and I remember the Lord really strongly asking us to do something and it was nothing like all the kids were being asked to do it was like he was speaking to us uniquely can you believe it you know and he did and and was like oh honey the Lord's asking us to do this and she's like well let's do it that's what we do and we did and I just you just have these these moments along the way so we do all these things and it's, and, it's, and it's all for the purpose of preparing this arrow to be launched. And it's a purpose that is worth, uh, it's worth doing. And it's also, it's hard work. In fact, I'm remembering uh, Deuteronomy 6, and I think I'll turn to that and read a little bit out of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 9, because it kind of reminds me of this same thing. This is the efforts that are being taken. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Stamp them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your households and on your gates. This is, Deuteronomy 6 is talking about that desire of, our, of us as parents to train up our kids. And that's why we hang scriptures on the walls of the house. And that's why we talk in the car. And that's why we pray at night. And we do all these things. But it's in the desire to train them up in the ways of God. And, it, and we recognize that it happens at home. It happens at church. It happens in the neighborhood. But, but the home is primary. They, that is, you've heard it from Pastor Brenda for several years now, Pastor Shaler. The home is the primary place of spiritual formation. It's got to happen there. Now, I want to encourage you because towards the end here, I'm going to talk about that. And I know, I already know, most parents will say, well, I don't do enough. I'm not doing enough. Okay, we'll get to that. But there is, there's steps, steps that can be made. So Deuteronomy 6 uh, talks about this efforts that we make. And I know you're feeling like you don't do enough. And, and I don't want you to, to beat yourself up today for not doing enough. My little bit of advice, though, and I got this uh, spoken over me so many times as I was growing up. My little bit of advice to you is this. Get as close to Jesus as you can. And I'm telling you, if you'll do that more times than not, <laughs> maybe every time, it seems, to be the, it seems to work. It seems to be the best advice you can get. I have a suspicion that we don't have to be perfect. I have a suspicion that there's grace uh, in all these things. So parents, grandparents, you want to train these children up. Get as close to Jesus as you can. You start to hear some of these things. You say, yeah, we don't do enough. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we should do more. Yeah, I've really failed there. I really blew it. I get it. I feel the same things as a parent. But let me remind you that there's a, there's, 
perfection is not being asked of you. I think a lot of it is, do you have a desire to do that? And then you need to start making some steps towards that. Let me encourage you, because I was deeply encouraged by this uh, six or eight, nine months ago when I was at a conference. There was this ridiculously smart professor, I think he was from Virginia Tech or something, and he was sharing his family studies research from 40 years of studying families. And he came up with a list, top three most effective parenting strategies. In fact, I'm gonna share the top three, there was really like 10 of them. But he came up with a list, he looked at families for 40 years, however you do that in the academic world. And it was amazing at how well it played uh, with the Bible. Because the truth is, if you run into truth, it's truth, right? Whether it's from a secular uh, professor or whether it's from the word of God, if it's truth, it's truth. So the top three most effective parenting strategies. You want your kids to become godly young people. We all, it's just, that's what we want. We want them to step into their destiny. This is what they said the top three were. And this blew blew me away, really encouraged me. I hope it encourages you. Number one, show love and affection. That's it. Show love and affection. And then he kind of couched it in this whole idea of create a warm place. Be warm. Show love and affection. Um, Your house, yourself, be warm. Show love and affection. You might try to overthink this. Don't. Just listen to these three and look, how, look, look at some of the truths that kind of tease out of it. Number one, show love and affection. And truthfully, I believe as you follow and you, you get as close to Jesus as you can, and you're close to Jesus maybe closer than my close to Jesus. I get it. Just get as close to Jesus as you can. Reach, pursue, do what you can. Don't compare to somebody else. Just get as close to Jesus as you can. And as you do, you're going to become more of a loving and affectionate person. But number one, most effective parenting strategy based on this guy's 40 years of experience and studies become uh, show love and affection. Second one, manage your own stress well. I'm still waiting for like a discipline thing here. Like here's how I'm supposed to discipline, but it wasn't even in the top two. Manage your stress well. Again, if you get as close to Jesus as you can, he's going to help us manage our stress well, right? And as we do that, we're going to create a home and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a parent that's more warm and loving and, um, and affectionate. Number three, treat your spouse well. We still haven't gotten to discipline. I thought for sure discipline, some discipline technique would be in there. It did show up. It was number seven on the list. But the first three, show love and affection, manage your own stress well, and treat your spouse well. I'm sitting there listening to this guy, and he's brilliant. And I'm thinking, you know what? That sounds like three things that would just naturally happen as I'm following Jesus and getting as close to Jesus as I can. I would be warm. Now, I appreciate, and I, and I want to just acknowledge my wife, and I'm, I'm sure you could say the same for your spouses. My, my wife desires to create a warm place at home. And like we're trying to manage our stress well. We're still working on that one. And we're trying to be, get as close to Jesus as we can. We're still wrestling through these things. But like I can just tell the things that she does at home and the colors that she chooses and the, the, and the record player spinning jazz on the side and the, the fact that we have one TV and it's hardly on, you know, just those kinds of things. She's doing things that, to create an atmosphere at home that would be warm and affectionate, and, uh, and, that, and I appreciate that. The fact that we got a dog and a rabbit, and the fact that we got a go-kart, and the fact that we got, I mean, all these things, it's like these creating this environment where we can, we can do these things with our kids. And I think it's intentional, and I want to acknowledge her, because I think she does it very well, to create a place that's warm and affectionate. As you get close to Jesus, it's, it's so simple, but I've heard it so many times. I've, I've, I've sat and I've heard one of my mentors listen to a just like a tsunami of facts and hurt and pain and then at the very end with a very calm, deliberate approach say, you know what, here's the big advice. Get as close to Jesus as you can. And people will either dismiss that like it's too easy or they'll accept it and it makes so much difference if you'll just accept it. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. And included in all those things, it's not just what am I going to wear and where am I going to live. It's also 
am I going to be able to raise these kids? Am I going to, you know, are we going to be able to get them and train them well? It's like all these things take care of itself. Look at that list. None of those things were about my kids. Show love and affection. That's about me. Manage my stress well. That's me. Treat your spouse well. That's me. All these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things to do with my kids and stuff are going to take care of themselves. Now, not out of happenstance, but out of an overflow that the Lord is working on me and the Lord is working on my wife, and then that's going to flow into our kids, right? So if you're living with this burden of, oh, man, I'd like to do more. I'd like to love my kids more. I'd like to have... Get as close to Jesus as you can. And if you're close to Jesus looks like I do nothing, that's not very close to Jesus. Like, that's, that's not even a good effort. Like, if you're close to Jesus means I go to church on a Sunday every once in a while, that's not as close to Jesus as you can. I'm not asking you to climb a tall mountain or wade through a three-mile river. I'm not asking you to fight crocodiles. But get as close to Jesus as you can. And if you want to know what that looks like, just ask the Lord, what would it look like this morning for me to get as close to Jesus? What would it look like? And the Holy Spirit who speaks through, down through history will speak to you and say, how about we try this? How about you go make a cup of coffee and just open up the word and let's, let's talk? How about we listen to worship music in the car? How about we get with a friend and just talk about the things of the Lord instead of something else? Get as close to Jesus as you can. Don't want to oversimplify it, but I'm pretty sure he's not expecting perfection. He's just expecting us to get as close to Jesus and then those changes happen here and they ripple through our families. Another thing that this guy said, and I'll move on, this is the most encouraging thing of all. He said that if you'll do relationship repair, I'm sitting there going, what is relationship repair? And as he keeps talking about it, I think it was Brenda, we like turned and I was like, I think relationship repair is forgiveness. And then later on the guy said, and some Christians call that forgiveness. But relationship repair. He said if you'll do relationship repair, what that looks like is, you know what kids, I'm sorry daddy shouldn't have raised his voice. You know what kids, I'm sorry mommy shouldn't have said it that way. You know what kids, I'm sorry I shouldn't have slammed my hand on the table. I apologize for that. If you will do relationship repair, this study from this really brilliant guy, it said that if you'll do it two out of five times, you'll get the same statistical uh, rewards as if you did it every single time. Two out of five, and I'm going, 40%. Yes, 40, because I was pretty sure I had to be perfect, and you don't have to be perfect. Again, if you'll seek first the kingdom of God, God has made room for you to be human. He knows you're human. He already knows it. That's why he sent his son to save you because you needed salvation. You needed help. And he's given his Holy Spirit so that he can lead you through if you just make the effort. I'm telling you, if you just make the effort, you don't have to be perfect. And probably you don't even have to be like passing. You can just be 40%. And this guy's estimation on just this one thing of forgiveness. And then you'll get the same results. And what that tells me is, you know what, parents? The Lord speaks to you in your times of strength and your times of normal and then you just completely forget whenever things are going crazy and chaotic. That's probably still okay. As long as you're just making an effort, drawing as close to him as you know how to do, he will make a way in your family because that's really what you want to do is for him to interrupt your family and to make a, make a way where there seems to be no way. So that's it. I wanted to share that with you as just a bit of encouragement. Is anybody encouraged by the 40% thing or the top three parent thing? It's all on you. It's all on you. It's not even about your kids. It's just beautiful. And of course, we can't fix ourselves, so we have to turn to the Lord, and then he helps us, and he develops. We're on a path ourselves, just like our kids are. It's amazing. It's amazing. I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. I told you there's two interpretations. Here's the second one. This is the one I'm just being honest with you. I'm wrestling with this one. I'm wrestling. Proverbs 6.22. I read it a second ago. Train up a child on the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some interpret the Hebrew words a little different and they come up with this. And I think both are good. I think they work in tandem really good. Uh, I don't think if you follow one or the other, you're going to find yourself in, you know, in heresy. It's not like, well, someone says do not murder and someone says do murder. This could be bad if you choose the wrong. It's not one of those. I think they work in tandem, but I think it's far more robust whenever you get this second part. And I really, I'm buying into it. I'm just still wrestling with how to act it out can also be interpreted this way based on how you work with the Hebrew words. Train up a child, not, the first way is in the way he should go. This way is train up a child according to his ways. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now let me just 
risk a little bit, because I know there's some people here way smarter than me, and it's risky, and I'm working through it. Take the he and the his and go lowercase for a second, okay? This is helping me. Train up a child, and a lot of people will even say that child is probably more of a young adult, but let's not go too deep there. Train up a child according to, lowercase, according to his ways, child's ways, and when he is, he, lowercase, is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, so the idea here, the concept here is train up a child according to their God-given strengths, according to their specific and unique proclivities. I'm not talking about sin. Like we all have a proclivity to sin, but your child may have a proclivity to do something that's very God-deposited in them, like very special, like God put that there. So train up a child according to his ways, his natural giftings from from the Lord, and as he gets old, he will not depart. So let me just run that idea out a little bit, and this is what I'm wrestling with. So as a parent, it's our responsibility to find the unique investments that God has deposited in our children's lives and to cultivate them so that that child can go in that direction, so that they can fulfill the purposes that God has spoken over them and placed in them. Now, I've got four kids, and they're way different. Have you ever noticed that? Like what worked on that first one took us forever to figure out what finally worked. It did not work on the second one, and definitely not the third and the fourth. I got four kids, and like one of them's like all into nature and animals, and I'm like, he studies it, and it's like amazing, and it's like, we just, and, and then the other one's into sports and, and throwing stuff and breaking, that's him right there. He's proud of that right there. And in math, like just, and it's just very different. And then another, then my girls, like one of them, well, both of them are emotional. I was about to say one of them was emotional. That may be a universal gift. Um, but one of them is like so emotional and so caring and writes so many encouraging notes and just so like, just, just amazing that way. And the other one's a little bit more carefree, a little bit more of a leader and just like, who cares what they think? Let's just go for it. It's just amazing how they're all, and so as a parent, it's my responsibility to find the unique deposits that the Lord has put into them. And so he's given our children a gift, Psalm 127. The children are a gift, and within that gift, there are specific gifts and proclivities and, and traits and stuff that the Lord has put in them. And don't expect that to be the case for every kid. That's a special one for you. Because God didn't just have this assembly line and make eight million of the same one. I mean, he made them all unique. And then we've got to nurture it and we've got to grow it and we've got to prepare it for the day when he or she is released in the world like that arrow. So we're smoothing it out and we're fixing the feathers and we're all that. And the purpose is to fulfill God's purpose for that child in their life. And so what it's done for me recently is I'm thinking, okay, if I'm supposed to train this child up, it's like pause, hit the brakes. What's that kid got already deposited in them? What's already there? It is my job, it is your job as a parent, as a grandparent, to, to look for that and then to start nurturing it and start, to, and start allowing opportunities and avenues for that child to grow in those areas. That's a lot of work though. That means you have to create arenas for your children to thrive and to, and to grow in that area. You have to create atmospheres and you have to try to, to shift some things away and to welcome other things so that child can grow. You wanna develop settings and, and, and set the table so that child can grow and flourish and develop. Why? Because God has a purpose for that child. And that purpose is once, they, once we launch them, and even really before that, but especially once we launch them, we want them to fulfill that. And then we want them to never, ever, ever depart from that because they have a destiny uh, in place. So train up a child according to his ways. God has a way for each of them. And it's way more intentional and special and unique than we ever, than I maybe ever imagined. I need to bring this thing to a close and I got another page, but let me, let me just... Let me try this. Are you, well, I don't ask you if you're bored because you might answer. <laughs> I want to share a book. J.P. Moreland uh, read a lot of his stuff. He's at a Biola, uh, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. I liked what he said here, and this is going to you parents because uh, I want you to be uh, deliberate in the way you raise your kids. We're wrestling with this. We're trying this. Don't look at us and say like, hey, we're, we're the masters of it. We're trying. We just realize there's a better way. J.P. Moreland says in this, in this chapter in the book, I love, I love your God with all your mind, it says, and it's a little long, but I'm going to read it. It says, our children can attend virtually any university and major in any subject they wish. 
but in a four-year course of study, they will almost never interact with a Christian thinker in their field or with a Christian idea relevant to their course of content. Why? No doubt many reasons could be given, but clearly one reason is that the cream rises to the top. If there are few Christian intellectuals who write college textbooks from a Christian perspective, it must be because our evangelical culture is simply not producing such people because we do not value the intellectual life. After all, the purpose of college, after all, the purpose of college, after all, the purpose of college, this is after a lot of years of youth ministry and just getting sick and tired of seeing this done wrong. The purpose of college for many is to get a job. And coursework is considered secular, not sacred. What is important for our children is that they stay pure in college and perhaps witness and have a quiet time and pray regularly. Obviously, these are important, but for a disciple, the purpose of college is not just to get a job. Rather, it is to discover a vocation, to identify a field of study in and through which I can serve Christ as my Lord. And one way to serve him in this way is to learn to think in a Christian manner about any major. A person's Christianity does not begin in a dorm Bible study when class is over. It permeates all of one's life. That's what you sing about at the center of it all the center of it all. We don't put God at the top of our list, we put him at the center of everything we do, at the center of all. It permeates all of one's life, including how one thinks about the ideas in one's college major. The church must train high school students for the intellectual life they will encounter at college. And I would say parents must train our kids to encounter uh, the intellectual life they will encounter at college. Theologian Carl Henry put it, training the mind is an, is an essential responsibility of the home, the church, and the school. It's not about a job. It's about training this kid to take advantage of what's already been deposited in their life. We're not just going to drop and just hope our teachers and our universities see it. We've got to do it as parents. It starts at home. He goes on to say this, according to various studies, increasing numbers of college freshmen on the advice of parents say their primary goal in college and going to college is to get a good job and ensure a secure financial future for themselves. Now that may just sound totally normal to you, but that should not sound normal to us. The primary goal is not to get a job and secure a financial future. What is not so clear is why Christians with a confidence in the providential care and provision of God would follow the secular culture in adopting this approach to college. How different this approach is compared to the value of a college education embraced by earlier generations of Christians. A Christian goes to college to discover his vocation, the area of service to which God has called him, and to develop the skills necessary to occupy a section of the culture, an intellectual domain in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God. A believer also goes to college to gain general information and habits uh, of thought necessary for developing a well-structured soul suitable for a well-informed good citizen of both earthly and heavenly kingdoms. It goes on, but that's probably enough. Point is, as we train these kids, as we train, as kids, as we train you, young adults, as, as, as your parents are training you, you've got to realize that we have a deep responsibility before the Lord to take this gift that has been entrusted us and shape it and sharpen it and do all that because we know at one point you're gonna be launched and it is our desire that as you launch, you don't just go get a good job and make money. You might, that'd be great, and it happens all the time, but the desire is that you would fulfill the purpose that God has placed individually on your life. That will, be, that will bring true joy, true happiness and fulfillment and it will be one of your greatest uh, offerings of worship as you step into that field that he has designed for you. And so this, these, these years growing up, parents, our job, our, our, our joy is to help our kids find those avenues. And so we gotta open up our eyes and start looking. You got two boys, they're different. What's good for him may not be good for him. They both like $20, but they act, they act different otherwise. Does that make sense? I want us to do that. That's, that's really important. As family, as family life team gets together and we talk, these are some of the things that we, we would talk about. All right, finally, and, I, and, then, and, I'll, and I'll end here. I spoke last week at a French church, uh, Phil Hunt, uh, Jacqueline uh, Rosario's dad, and Jill McKenzie's dad, and I actually spoke on the, the, the water being turned into wine, and there was this one part that I actually borrowed from Pastor Des back in the 90s, and it's so 
excited me because we talk about homes and families and stuff. And so I want to just kind of share one little point for you, and then we're going to pray for our families. And the point was, in the, in the talk of turning water into wine, it was just this, this idea, the start was, it was, it's kind of an embarrassing story for a lot of Christians. Uh, when we read it, we almost want to apologize or we don't quite know what to do with parts of it. And part of it is because it talks about alcohol. Part of it is it talks about, uh, it's, it talks about you know, Jesus being at a party. It's like, oh, we just, we'd rather just Jesus be boring and just like not ever have any fun. And that would just be easier for us to handle. And there's, uh, there were other embarrassing uh, things in there as, as well, uh, but I won't, I won't go down the list. But about this Jesus at the party thing, I want to just present the idea that Jesus was at home in homes. He felt very comfortable in homes. And he wasn't always treated well in homes, but he felt very comfortable in homes. And we have to wrestle with the idea that Jesus starts his ministry with this miracle at Cana, this turning water into wine, and it happened at a home. It happened at a party. And it's a social event. And he probably didn't even preach most of the time. He may not have preached at all. He may have preached a little bit, but it wasn't, that wasn't the point. He was just there because he likes people. He's, he's comfortable with people. And John the Baptist came fasting, and Jesus came feasting. And we don't like that. We don't, I mean, we like it, but it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, maybe, should it be more serious? Should, like, shouldn't he go to the temple first? Like, this is, his first, this is the introduction of his, of his miracle, miracles, and this is his ministry, and, like, shouldn't he do this, like, at a more religious party or at a temple or synagogue at least? I mean, like, no, he did it at home. And it just kind of, it kind of irritates people. And so, from Pastor Dez, circa 1994, I think it was, he began to, to point uh, at a list of, of moments where Jesus walked into homes. And I just want to share them with you really, really, really quick. Because Jesus is at home in homes. And sometimes felt uncomfortable in temples and synagogues and religious parties. Whether the home is humble or ostentatious, ostentatious, didn't matter. Jesus felt comfortable in homes. In Mark chapter 1, 29-33, Jesus finds himself in Peter's home. And he stays a little while and he heals his mom. Jesus was comfortable in homes. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was teaching in a home. And the crowd started gathering. And then it started packing the house out. And then it went outside the house. And then people are hanging through the windows. And it just got so thick that these, these friends wanted to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they couldn't even find a way in. But they had faith that Jesus would heal them if, he, if they could just possibly get him. So they climbed up on the roof and they tore back the thatch roof. And they lowered the man down. And Jesus healed. That was in a home. It wasn't in the synagogue. It was in a home. Mark 7, 24, there's this Phoenician Greek woman. And at first glance, it almost looks disrespectful. It looks like he's calling her a dog. But there's some, there's some nuance here. And basically the woman says, I know you're just ministering amongst the Jews right now. Now, she wouldn't know this, but later on you'll reach out to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. And aren't we so glad he did? I know that's what you're doing. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says, ooh girl I have not seen that kind of faith go home your daughter's healed and it happened in a home Mark 14 at the house of Simon the leper now he wasn't a leper anymore but you know stigmas hang with people right now that leper but he's been healed but the stigma kind of hangs around he was there and he and Jesus was anointed with oil from the alabaster jar that happened in a home Luke chapter 7 verse 36 he was in a house of a Pharisee this time where his feet were anointed with oil and wiped with the tears of a sinful woman. And the Lord thought that was awesome because he's comfortable in homes. In fact, he went in that home, wasn't even treated well. They should have washed his feet. That would have been the nice, hospitable thing to do. They didn't do that. But she uh, wiped his feet with her hair and wet them with her tears. That happened in a home. Luke 10, 38, Martha's house. You know, that's that infamous story where Martha says, tell, or Mary, yeah, one of them tells the other, Start, come back and work. Which one was it? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Martha, Mary, you know. Yes, that one. She's not working. And Jesus says, you know what? She's actually doing what's, what's right. That was in a home. Jesus is really comfortable in homes. House of the Pharisees, Luke 14, 1. They were trying to trick him. And they were waiting to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And sure enough, he did. Luke 24, 29, two are walking on the way on the road to Emmaus and 
this third dude just shows up and starts talking and then it gets late and they decide to invite him to their house and they're eating as he's breaking the, the bread and sharing. He's like, they're like, whoa, that's Jesus. And whoosh, he disappears. Jesus, again, introduces himself into the homes. He just, he's welcome and he loves going into people's homes. John 11 in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Martha was busy serving. Lazarus was sitting, listening to the master and Mary, well, she was worshiping sacrificially as she does. Luke 19, he saw a man up a tree and said, dude, come down. Let's go to your home and let's eat. And someone was like, does he even know who that is? That is a sinful guy. He's a tax collector. Jesus didn't care. He was really comfortable in homes. Today, as we, in conclusion, I just want to say, we talked about raising kids. We talked about families and nurturing and all that kind of stuff. And I know I can kind of go all over the map and it's been a busy week. And so my thoughts may not be as clear as they could be but I want to tell you as we talk about all those things Jesus is comfortable in your home and the desire of my heart is that you'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these important things that we worry so much about they will take care of themselves because we're seeking after him and we're getting as close to Jesus as we can homes are incredibly precious to God he invented it in Genesis he invents the home he invents marriage and he even did it before he invented the church it's a big deal to him and I want to tell you that as I just challenge you to uh, to invest in your home and to love on your home I just want to just remind you that the Lord Jesus is comfortable in your home he will help you he wants to help you Ecclesiastes 4 talks about two are better than one but a third stranded cord is even better than that Invite Jesus into your home. And if you don't know what that looks like, talk to some of our parents that are doing it and they'll give you some advice. But I'm telling you, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to want it. You just have to want to. And just realize that as we reach, as we want, as we dream, the Lord responds to those types of things and he will help us. We have a real home crisis in our country. And uh, I wanna encourage you not to chase after the latest and the greatest idea or scheme to fix it. Get as close to Jesus as you can. Seek first his righteousness. And I'm telling you, he's gonna be faithful and he's really comfortable. So don't think by you inviting him in, you'll be like imposing upon him. He loves, he loves coming into homes. Amen.